Welcome to What We Will Abide. I'm Sam Schindler. In this episode, I'd like to introduce you to three very different people who are leading very different lives. The three separate conversations I had with each of these individuals led to an emergent theme, and that theme is immigration to the United States. Each of these people has his or her own story to tell, and my objective here is to give you a small portion of that story and then let the longer stories unravel in their own individual episodes. Right now, you'll hear from three voices. Michael, a lawyer in the suburbs of New York City. Madap, a refugee resettlement director now living in Philadelphia. And Audrey, a legal consultant for immigrants living in Lancaster. I actually had four conversations, two with Michael, the second of which was held over the phone, and for that reason, you'll notice a difference in the audio quality, and hope that the story emerges regardless. And now, Waveland, an introduction. Immigrants are among the most vulnerable populations, um, just by their very nature of being new to a foreign country. And so they're the easiest group in many ways to target and scapegoat when things aren't going so good and the mobs kind of, you know, point in a direction and off everybody's thinking or some people's thinking goes, which is very dangerous. Immigrants provide unbelievable... I mean, we're a country of immigrants. Everybody here who wasn't native here when Europeans got here were immigrants. I mean, that's just who we are, whether we want to face it or not, um, whether it was one generation ago or seven or ten or more. Um, I, th- I think there, you know, I mean, there is a legitimate problem of illegal immigration. I mean, you know, I believe a country needs to control its borders and know who it's going to let in to be a citizen among us. Um, but I think unnecessary fear and xenophobia is, is, is not a wise way to make policy. The greatness of the United States of America, the pride and profundity of being an American, lies in the very foundation that we are a nation of immigrants, that on our shores many, many hundreds of years ago, people from different countries came as refugees. So to build a wall to say that you cannot come to the United States, we cannot protect you because you belong to this culture or to this faith. I think this is a very dangerous statement, and I really believe and hope and pray that this this cannot happen. Because if this happens, I would then envision of a world where all the Chinese would be living in China, all the Japanese would be living only in Japan. It would completely demarcate the world on a different line. It, it, you know, it takes a redefinition of who a human being is. I think today a global village, the concept of global village, it's, you cannot really divide who is who and who is not. But having said that, national security is absolutely important. I, like any other person living in the United States, feel that we, every individual American should be protected and should live without fear. My clientele over the last few years, uh, more and more are Spanish speakers, um, some of whom are only Spanish speakers, which makes conversations and, you know, 
<laughs> dealing with legal issues like um, eviction uh, a bit of a challenge, but it's one that, that I've welcomed and I've enjoyed, actually. So uh, you're trading on your high school Spanish in this, in this regard? I am trading on my high school Spanish. I, and, yes, and it's I, adequate? Um, I used high school Spanish when I was in high school, when during the summers I used to work with some of the garden crews around here. And they only spoke Spanish. Mm-hmm. So um, I was just, you know, I had to, the Spanish that I picked up might have, you know, not been textbook Spanish, but um, it was certainly conversational. And, um, and yeah, some of it seemed to have stuck. That experience was probably, um, I loved it. You know, it was, it was my first foray into what hard work and teamwork and the value of work, I mean, these are guys who had come to this country, you know, hop the fence, sending most of what little they earned back to their, you know, families in Mexico or in Peru or wherever. And, um, you know, they didn't speak much English, but they worked hard and earned enough of a living to support themselves and to support their families. And um, I've actually seen some of them now. Some of the guys that I work with, there's a guy who has his own company. Um, so over the 20 some years that, you know, I worked with him picking weeds, he started his own small company here and, you know, moved his family. Many of my clients over the last few years have been immigrants, um, mostly from, um, Central and South America, but also from Africa and the Middle East. And, um, and they too, um, in a very similar narrative, arrive in this country without, um, adequate knowledge of what their rights are and how to protect those rights. And, and that leaves them vulnerable in many situations, you know, whether it's at the hands of a landlord or an employer, whether they're afraid to go to the police because they have been the victims of a crime or suffer silently domestic abuse or don't understand fully what their parental rights are in child custody cases. Um, and so my role in these circumstances has been to help them navigate what is sometimes the minefield of the law. Um, you know, I was born the grandchild of immigrants, and their stories, um, I don't want to say weighed heavily on me, but significantly influenced who I am from a cultural, religious, just in moral person that I am. Um, it's largely come through the people who made me, and those people were highly influenced by the immigrant experience. And This um, is the Jewish immigrant experience. This is the Jewish immigrant experience. And just, do you know where they and came from? They came from Eastern Europe. You know, Russia, Poland, borders were kind of demarcated. Right. You know, it was one, you know, you're, you're Polish and one year you're Russian. Sure. Um, and so um, I, I was very much drawn to, you know, their experiences as immigrants. I come from a beautiful country called Bhutan that's sandwiched between Tibet and India. I was a young boy uh, working studying, you know, like any other youth, I had my dreams. I wanted to become a medical doctor, actually. My father and my parents aspired me to become a medical doctor, but uh, the political situation in the country was not going right. And uh, uh, one on May of 1992, in the middle of the night, we actually um, we were forced to, to leave our home. I still remember untethering our cows, uh, leaving our horses and goats and sheep from their sheds. We carried everything, whatever we could, and then we left for a journey, which actually took 20 years. Nobody in the first place wants to be a refugee, no matter how hard, how 
hard your life is or how difficult, how poor your country is, everyone wants to belong to a nation, everyone wants to belong to a country, and everyone wants to live in their own home. But to be a refugee was really painful for me because I had my dreams, I wanted to study, I wanted to support my family. So my father, he was about 75 years when he became a refugee. He was already, you know, old, but uh, he still had to work because we became refugees. So um, life was never a bed of roses. I spent about 20 years in the refugee camps, working hard, skipping meals, uh, going from place to place, looking for opportunities, uh, studying. I pursued my higher education. I completed two master's degrees in sociology and in English and a master of philosophy. And later on, I, I worked as a, as a principal of a college in, in, the, in Nepal, um, but I was still a, an outsider. I was still a refugee. I was still keeping my income under the pillow. I didn't have a social security. I didn't have medical insurance. I couldn't own a car. I couldn't buy a house. So, and besides, my entire refugee, you know, my family, my parents, my, my kith and kins, my entire family was in the refugee camps. Um, I was originally born in Peru, in Lima, the capital, so I'm a city person. Um, and I lived there most of my life until age 11 when I came to America. And my parents and I, I'm an only child, so they, the only person that they had to bring was me. Two semesters before finishing at Millersville, I got this really scary email from the university that said, we've been looking at our records and this number doesn't match the whatever clearinghouse institution or whatever. And I, I remember that email because I saw it and I just bawled. Like my whole life just crumbled. And the email basically said, if you don't provide a social security number, we're not sure. It said, we'll have to take action of some sort. And I saw that email and I was just like, my dad was just like, well, just have to tell them you don't have one. I don't think I did. I think I just, I think that was one of the points in life where I like absolutely gave up. Um, there's, a, there's a vulnerability that comes uh, indoor by virtue of them being newcomers in a new land. Um, they are um, seen as competitors in the job force and by those who are here. And, and despite the fact that uh, immigrants typically do the jobs that most other people won't do, uh, backbreaking work usually, you know, six, seven days a week, um, often without knowledge of their rights um, or ways to safeguard them, they are, um, you know, suffering abuses at times um, by their employers, by their landlords. Um, but in, in the workforce, I think a lot of too many from what this last election seemed to reveal, um, too many are being blamed for um, a joblessness in America, low wages, which is in total disregard of the fact, as I said, that immigrants often do the jobs that Americans, other Americans won't do, and that um, you know the loss of manufacturing jobs in this country is largely the result of jobs going overseas for which you can blame corporations um, and, and, and because of automation, which are causing fewer and fewer blue-collar jobs to exist in this country. So, um, so, that, so they're scapegoated, and sometimes they're, they're viciously scapegoated. I think this election showcased that, 
um, that that you know immigrants are um, stealing America's American jobs when when that is very much not the case. When I graduated, I was faced with so few options that back then there wasn't DACA. That was 2007, so there was nothing. Um, so and I I convinced my father. I said, well, give me like six months. If in six months I can't figure out my life, then I will. I guess I'll go back home. Because he basically said, you either go back and go to school there, but you will not stay here and like do the jobs that your mother and I did. So um, I actually ended up getting a job. It was a factory job. And it was with my mother. And I'm sorry. So I worked with my mother at that factory job, and my mother isn't young you know, she's like 59 now, I think. Um, and I saw, I think I knew, I mean, I came since 11 and most of my life I, since in this country has been, you know, I spent most of the time alone because my parents worked so much, two to three jobs, you know. I understood that a job was important for a livelihood, but I didn't understand what my parents actually had to do. And when I went to work with my mom at that factory, I saw her lifting 50, 60, 100 pound boxes and, you know, working 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day and just nonstop. And she would get so happy when her name was on that board for employee of the week or the most production done. We we packed lottery tickets then. Um, and I didn't understand, but I understood then because I saw all the all the struggle that she had survived just to put me through school, just to put me through college. And and so I decided, I was like, I can't, they brought me here for a reason. I can't go back to start all over again. I can't leave them behind after they didn't leave me behind. So just the naive question then, which I don't think gets asked, why do countries need to control their borders? Well, you don't want dangerous people coming in. You have dangerous people all everywhere. Like, they're dangerous to American citizens. I would rather have PhDs and law-abiding citizens um, come into this country than people who are, um, you know, violent criminals. What about people fleeing political and religious persecution. Yeah, I mean, those are people that we need to let into our country. I, I, do we I mean, vet them in the... Everybody has to be vetted. 100%. So how do you decide? How do you determine who it is that is potentially dangerous? Like, How far do you go? Well, I mean, if people are affiliated with known terrorist organizations... How do you know? 
I mean, do you that's, ask him? That's Can what, we see uh, your ISIS card, please? You know, I, 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 I imagine, yeah, you know, I am not involved in government at all, but there is, you know, there are databases of information about, you know, who is, who is connected to whom and which organizations are funding, you know, which projects that have known ties to bad guys. There are bad guys out there, so we don't we don't want them to. You know, why make us more vulnerable? By so, are you asking why not just have open borders? Yes. Why do you think open borders? I mean, what do you think would happen if there were just open borders? I I I don't think it would be any different from what we have right now. I think there'd be a lot less violence around our borders. I think that a lot fewer potential emigres would be wounded, murdered by law enforcement. I think that. Um, There'd be a lot fewer refugees that were stranded and wound up sinking off the coast of the island of Lesbos. I think that there'd be a lot less families who were separated, things like that. I just... You don't think that with no border control... So are you looking for a a sort of a pan-American experience? I don't know know why it isn't worth a try. (laughs) Is nationalism no longer... Is nationalism no yeah. longer a, a, a way that we should sort of no, right. be carving so, out our, our experience in the world? So no. Refugees entering into the United States are the most vetted visitors, anyone that enters in, into the country. This was your experience? Yes. It takes at least two years, you know, to just complete those, those all the processes, like from first round of interview by United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees or UNHCR until the time, you know, pre-embarkment and all the cultural orientation. Oh, my God, you have to be so consistent. I don't think anybody who, anybody can hide anything, you know. It's, it's just so difficult. This is what I always say to our dreamers here. DACA didn't come about because Obama woke up one day and said, I'm going to get these kids something. I'm going to give them some normalcy in their lives. I I like to believe in people, but I don't think people are that good. Um, I would have loved for him to wake up one day and say, yeah, we're going to give citizenship to everybody, everybody, make it rain. But no, that didn't happen. I think it was definitely a push of uh, groups, grassroots groups. Um, United We Dream is a Dreamers uh, immigrants rights group out of D.C. Um, they were huge. Um, I think they were a huge, uh, huge influence in the present. I think they had dreamers meeting up with him all the way uh, since the beginning of his, of his initial administration in 2008 and said, this is what we want. Also, to the, in 2010, the Dream Act didn't pass. Um, it was so close to passing. I know because I watched it. I remember where I was exactly when I watched the Dream Act fail at Congress. It took him two years to say, Maybe we don't have to go through Congress. Maybe it's going to be an executive action, and that's what DACA was. So it's actually two things that DACA gave me. Um, the work permit, but the biggest thing was the deferral of deportation. Um, DACA actually stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Deferred Action because it's deferral of deportation. So before DACA, ICE could come and say, you're undocumented, goodbye. Right? Deport me. Um, after DACA, I have this really neat letter that I have framed that says that you cannot be deported. Um, obviously, there's a caveat, unless you commit some sort of crime, that's that makes it a deportable offense. But I can be deported just because I'm undocumented, just because I'm here without any proper authorization. You have a candidate now, a future president, who said, I'm going to get rid of DACA. It's in a 100-day plan. 
the executive action that is DACA will be ended, period. And so the community was was basically rallied against for this, saying we cannot have a president that will take back all the progress we have made. People have renewed DACA since. It's been four years. Um, imagine what could happen if this executive action is ended. Imagine not... The reality is that he could very much be elected, and now he has, and we have, there is no plan B. There are a number of people I wish to thank for their help with this episode including Ari Gold for the music, Russ Smith for the cover art, and of course, Michael Madop and Audrey for their interviews. You will be hearing more from them in coming episodes. If you are interested in contributing to What We Will Abide, which is increasingly becoming a collaborative project, please let me know, whether it's art or music or something else. I'm interested in working with as many willing people who have an appreciation for the project as possible. Again, you can find older episodes on my website, samshimler.com, on iTunes, and of course on the What We Will Abide Facebook page. Please, if you have a moment, rate What We Will Abide on iTunes and write a review because it helps newer listeners find the show. Thanks for listening.